a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Beware the Ides of March. It is the 15th of March today. Halfway through the month. I can't believe it, but here we go. By the way, our program is brought to you in part each day at this time, assuming that you're not listening to the podcast and can listen anytime you want, by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, by Monticello College, also by Pure Light. This is, by the way, the future of the next generation of light bulb, and by HSL Ammo. Very happy for all of these sponsors. I appreciate uh, you being a listener, whether you're a longtime listener or a newcomer to uh, being a wrong thinker. We have a lot of fun stuff to discuss today. And I think we're going to dive right in with a couple of thoughts on uh, the president's speech last week. Now, I, look, I don't watch the news channels. I don't watch political speeches. It's just not my thing. But it was interesting to, to see some of the excerpts that came out. And there was one in particular... And, and I'm going to have to paraphrase this just a little bit. Um, I'll, I'll try to keep it true to the tone of, of what President Biden was saying. But essentially, he was, he was saying, look, we need, to, we need to follow the science. We need to follow the rules. And if we do, then maybe by July 4th, we can have a few people get together and have a barbecue and celebrate our independence. But in order to do that, we've got to follow the science. We've got to... We've got to uh, we got to know the science, and we got to put our trust and faith, that was his word, by the way, in the government to protect us. And it was delivered in such a grandfatherly tone. I mean, honestly, if you were trying to get people to swallow a bitter pill of, um, well, I'm just going to call it despotism, you would want to deliver it in a very calm and rational and, and easy-on-the-ears kind of approach. And gosh, you know, Biden just kind of made it sound like, well, Grandpa's just asking us to just, you know, behave ourselves for a little while, and then maybe we can be ungrounded, and and we can get together with, you know, Cousin Billy and Cousin Sue, and, and we can have a hot dog and light a sparkler on the 4th, you know, to celebrate freedom. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was wrong on so many levels. And it just, it still just blows me away. But there are, there are folks who are actually, you know, hanging on every word. Yes, 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 we must. We must only listen to, uh, to what, uh, you know, government experts are telling us on this. And by the way, Dr. Fauci was on the news channels apparently yesterday and was asked a question. I think it was Chuck Todd who asked him, uh, so, uh, you know, after the restrictions of last year, it looks like things are finally starting to settle down. Are, we, are people safe to go ahead and plan a wedding for this year? And Fauci, in, in the manner of a bureaucrat who actually believes his own press releases, said, well, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but I just can't give you a date when it would be safe to do so. And I just want to back it up here. Look, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and pick on Fauci. I'm not going to tell you he throws a baseball like a girl. I think I did that already last year. But since when does this man have any authority? 
to determine when and how a person can uh, resume a normal life. No, I know, he pretends he has that authority. And there are plenty of people in government, from the president on down, who pretend that, yes, why we have to listen to exactly what he says. I mean, I know it's, it's hyperbole to some. I don't disagree, though, when people kind of refer to, refer to him as Pope Fauci. Because every, every pronouncement is treated like, oh, well, you know, somebody write that down quick, you know, let it be published. You know. The choice is up to us. And I think we're, we're in danger of reaching a point where we have forgotten who is really in charge. Or at least, let me put that another way. Where political power originates and, and how it flows, right? If you've worked in business, you've seen flow charts. Okay, these are how the decisions are made. This is, this is where the buck stops. This is how we have the hierarchy. But I think a lot of people have an actually reversed, maybe 180 degree flipped idea of how political power flows and, and where it originates. It's, it's, for a lot of people, it's the, a matter of, well, you know, we have the freedoms that our government tells us that we have. That's why it's there, to tell us what our freedoms are and tell us what we can do. And I'm not suggesting people who believe that are stupid or that they are evil. But I am going to suggest that there are an awful lot of folks who are really comfortable with the idea of uh, just waiting for someone to command them. Hey, you do this, you do that. And I don't know for sure where that mentality comes from. I've had it at times in my life. And frankly, in some situations, you know, a medical emergency, I'm definitely going to be looking for the person who has, you know, some kind of medical training. Someone standing there, you know, clutching their chest and, and turning, you know, terrible colors. You know, I, I know some things to do, but if I know that my friend there is a nurse or a paramedic, you better believe that's where I'm going to look. Oh, hey, what, uh, you know, they tell me, you, go do this. You, stand here. You, push there, whatever. I will probably do it. But I'm just struggling with this idea that, uh, you know, when it comes to COVID, we've got to, we've got to really, you know, trust and put our faith in the government to, to protect us. And... If I could just be really blunt for a moment, I know this is uncharacteristic of me, but one of the biggest frustrations that I see on a day-to-day basis is how many commentators and politicians and bureaucrats and, and average people will talk about how, you know, COVID has sure cost us a lot. COVID shut down so many businesses and COVID got so many people, you know, um, isolated and, and COVID drove, you know, this uh, increase in drug abuse and alcoholism and suicidal tendencies and so forth. And I'm just going to ask you, please step back before you make such a statement and ask yourself, how did a virus do those things? Because that virus did not make public policy. It was policymakers. It was authorities. It was bureaucrats. They are the ones who decided in response to the virus that, well, we have no choice but to shut down these businesses, but to isolate these people, but to put them into circumstances in which their, their mental and physical well-being is deteriorating and their, you know, people are desperately trying to self-medicate or otherwise cope with the, with the wholesale upending of their world. It wasn't the virus. It was the people, the politicians, the policymakers. They're the ones who made the decisions that were then carried out by enforcers that have made people so miserable and caused so much suffering and damage.
And, and you may say, well, Brian, it sounds like you're just trying to cast blame here. I'm just trying to assign accountability where it belongs. And putting this off on some nebulous virus, which none of us have ever seen or will ever speak to personally. Virus, you have done some bad. Go to your room and think about what you've done. That ain't going to work. And I don't know if you noticed this, but it didn't obey any of the official public policy pronouncements either. Every bit of damage that was done, including sending people to nursing homes in great numbers, Governor Cuomo, to where they could be infected and die, it was done by human beings, leaders, if you will, making the decision to do it. And whatever excuses they offer, I mean, they're going to vary. We had no choice. No, you saw no other choice. There's a difference. But that accountability needs to be squarely in their laps. And it's ironic, you know, the, the president talking about how, well, you know, it's uh, if, if you're very good and you behave, and I'm sorry, it was very patronizing. The, the, I, I just read the transcript and was going, wow, wow, there is no way this could be in front of a live audience or they would boo him off the stage. If there were vegetables available, he'd be dodging vegetables. Politicians speaking to us like we're little children, pat us on now. You run along, you go back to your room, think about what you've done, and you think about what I've told you. And if you're very good, then maybe, maybe we'll let you get together with one of your friends and and play a little bit on the 4th of July. I mean, there's a part of me that actually wonders, is is this the equivalent of getting a slap across the face with a glove? Because if it is, challenge accepted. Do you want to test my commitment to freedom? I'm willing to put that to the test because <laughs> I happen to know I spend every waking moment of every day focusing on how can I live with freedom, even in a very unfree world. How can I avoid whatever controls and traps and, and, and entanglements you, Mr. Politician, want to put on me and still maintain my freedom. And by the way, I can't have it all. So I'm, I'm not delusional enough to think that, yes, I can have it all. Nope. And there's no place in the world, really, that a person can go <clears throat> to enjoy perfect freedom. But I'm still determined to exercise what I have as long as I have it. And part of that means I'm not waiting around for some politician to tell me, hey, it's okay to have some friends over to barbecue and maybe light a sparkler. I made that decision a long time ago. I guess what I'm trying to say nicely is... I don't need you to make those kind of decisions. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Once again, thanks for being part of this growing audience. I want to share an experience that I had over the weekend. I, I had the chance to travel, and I, I'm going to I'm going to be a little bit vague, just because there are people out there who, for whatever reason, feel like it is it is their duty to find and punish those who do not, uh, you know, conform to the COVID orthodoxy. But I will tell you this: I traveled to a neighboring state, and uh, in a in a community, a small community in that neighboring state, I had the opportunity to uh, to go to the grocery store. I, this is very exciting stuff, right? <laughs> Okay, let me get to the point. It was amazing. I walked into this grocery store uh, with my wife and with a, with a couple of relatives, and 
the staff were wearing masks, although one of the cashiers had hers pulled down over her chin. Uh, the store was hopping, by the way, too. I mean, it was it was evening, and it was staying pretty busy. I think out of several dozen people that I encountered there at that grocery store, maybe one, maybe two customers were wearing masks. Everybody else was just walking around like normal human beings. And I know for some people that's going to be like, oh, how irresponsible, how reckless. But that's not the reaction I had. I, I, in fact, it, it was the same reaction or the, it felt much the same as what I reported on a few weeks ago when I was visiting um, family in, in Idaho and uh, went somewhere, went to a restaurant where, again, nobody was wearing masks. It just felt normal. And it felt so good. And please understand, not everybody in my family is, is quite as, as hardcore as I am about, I will not wear the mask unless it is absolutely, positively unavoidable. But even, even my family members who are, are you know, a lot more um, go with the flow, easy, easy to get along with in that regard, were actually relieved. Hey, this is great. I don't have to put on a mask. And it was nice. It was fun to see people. It was fun to talk to them. It was fun to see their faces. What's crazy to me is that's the exception. In our world today, that is an aberration. Oh, you saw people without masks? <gasps> Tell me about it. <laughs> okay, maybe it's not that exciting. But it was just that little semblance of normalcy and a reminder that it all comes down to consent. It really does. And I don't know what it is. Where, where I live in northern Utah, I have, you know, there is, there's a lot of population. I think there's... 600,000 people in in, uh, my little county that I live in. But I see mask compliance still probably 90, 95% most places that I go. And for the record, I've stopped indulging the the mask. You know, if if there's not somebody there at the door actively checking and, uh, you know, uh, of course this means Costco is off limits, but that's okay. I'm enjoying finding other uses for my money than (laughs) spending it all at Costco. But my point is this. Government shouldn't be the deciding factor here, and it shouldn't be people within government who decide, well, how far should we restrict things? That should be left to the market. And I have a marvelous commentary here from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is written by Ramon P. DiGennaro. Leave the choice of restrictions to the market. I think he's got some good information here. He says, coffee shops in Knoxville, Tennessee, are a microcosm of the world's reaction to COVID-19. A Starbucks here features a drive through stacked several cars deep hour after hour. Most of the people waiting patiently in their cars wear masks. Inside, the shop is nearly deserted. But he says, as soon as I enter, the barista tells me to pull my mask up over my nose and to stay six feet away. I'm the only indoor customer. Now, he says, I can't tell if the barista or any of the other employees are smiling, but their eyes make me doubt it. It's eerily quiet. Across the street, the Panera doesn't have a drive through but it does offer curbside service and carry-out. Inside, the place is about half full, the limit for indoor dining at the time. Most people in line for service wear their masks properly, but a few have them pulled down, exposing their noses. Most people stay a few feet away from the others, but several couples stand side by side. No one is seated at a table wearing a mask. As soon as the table opens, an employee swoops in to spray it with antiviral cleaners and to wipe it clean. Within minutes, the table is occupied again 
Conversation and laughter filled the shop. Some customers pulled down their masks so that baristas can hear their order. Neither the masked baristas nor the customers ever complain. He says, one coffee shop clearly takes safety much more seriously than the other, enforcing official sanitary protocols and chastising customers who are less than rigorous. The other takes reasonable precautions, but allows customers to take liberties with official safety protocols. And he asks, what's going on? What's wrong with this picture? What's wrong, or what's going on, rather, he says, is that markets continue to function despite government restrictions, and there's nothing wrong with that. Commerce thrives by following consumer preferences and behavior, and consumers exhibit a wide range of responses to COVID-19. Some people essentially ignore it. Others openly flout sanitary requirements or even view it as a conspiracy. And at the other extreme, people suffer irrational fear bordering on paranoia. He says, my favorite example occurred while cruising a freeway at 75 miles per hour. I noticed a blue Honda Accord in my rearview mirror driving erratically. The Accord narrowly missed cars as it cut in front of them, careened across two lanes of traffic, and then blew past me at about 90 miles per hour. The driver cut in front of me, missing by just a few feet as it lurched back to its original lane and vanished into the other traffic. By the way, the reckless driver, alone in his car, was wearing a mask. Now, absent government restrictions... He says, we would surely observe coffee shops catering to all these groups. Some would operate with fewer or even no extra safety procedures. They may not require masks at all, or they may operate at full capacity. Customers who take COVID-19 lightly would prefer this more relaxed atmosphere. If too few people are comfortable with this level of safety, then the shop would have to institute more stringent sanitation procedures, or the lack of customers would force it out of business. He says, as of this writing... Within most jurisdictions, operating with such normal safety protocols is banned. Consumers have fewer options. Even so, market forces continue to work. Within the constraints of the health departments, businesses set their own policies, giving consumers more options. They patronize the places that fit their needs. People who are cautious use the drive through at Starbucks. People who want a place to gather as a community to share great coffee and deepen human connection choose Panera. Customers decide for themselves, weighing their perceptions of greater risk against the greater happiness they'll have. Forcing all businesses to allow indoor dining would deprive people who strongly value safety of a place to get coffee in what they consider to be a sufficiently secure environment. Forcing everyone to adhere to the Starbucks approach, though, would eliminate a source of pleasure for people who want to meet friends, tutor students in a comfortable public place, or just get out of the house for a while. They may even feel that avoiding a drive-thru serves a higher purpose. Why sit in line, burning petroleum-based fuel and emitting carbon when another shop right across the street lets you shut off the engine and enjoy your coffee inside? Now, Ramon DiGennaro says, These people, true, they may run a slightly higher risk of catching a nasty bug, but we allow people to choose much greater risks in other areas of life. Some drive huge SUVs with the latest safety features to their safe office jobs. Some ride motorcycles to their dangerous construction sites. Offering different dining arrangements also allows needed flexibility for the increasing number of people who've already recovered from infection and have protective antibodies. Additionally, the New York Times reports the U.S. has administered 30 vaccination injections per 100 people. So because full vaccination sometimes requires two injections, 
The percentage of people fully vaccinated is lower, but the people with at least partial protection is likely in the high teens or even higher. Whatever the number is, it's rising rapidly. Ramon P. DeGenero says, Allowing vaccinated people the opportunity to return to a freer lifestyle has an added society benefit. It will surely increase vaccination acceptance rates. The alternative, forcing vaccinated people to continue to adhere to the strictest sanitary protocols, would surely reduce the number of people willing to be vaccinated. What's wrong with allowing businesses to choose their approach to customer safety and customers to choose which business they patronize? The answer is nothing. Nothing at all. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, I'm just going to throw this out there just for your consideration. I don't know if you struggle as, as I struggle to, to find reliable and, uh, and credible information. And, and I'm just going to come right out and say it. Most of the mass media, I don't trust. They have, they've shed any objectivity. There, there is no pretense about, hey, look, we're just reporting facts, you know, free of labels, free of judgment, free of emotion-laden buzzwords. We're just going to give you the facts, and you can make up your own mind what it all means. Now, that, uh, that bus left the station a long, long time ago. And so that leaves people wondering, well, what can I trust? Who can I believe? And if you're one of those people, and that's why you find yourself listening to this program, um, I can relate. And I, I, it's why I do what I do. Having said that, I know that uh, there's, there's a great deal of uh, cancel culture mentality out there about how everything that is not approved, everything that is not you know, within the boundaries of approved opinion needs to be silenced. Which means that need for people who are willing to speak unpopular, though uh, still, you know, necessary truths, it's greater than ever. And I certainly am not the only example of this. Here's my pitch. If you find value, whether it's in this program or other programs like it, I would ask you to please consider voting with your wallet. Become a monthly donor. It could be as little as a dollar. It could be $5 or $10. There are options that are available to you. And I'm not asking you, just, you know, send that money only to me. I'm saying if there is any program that, uh, that you find helps to, to provide some light and truth at a time where, where you need it, consider making that, you know, a part of your monthly budget. It doesn't have to be something major. We're not talking about a, you know, $25 subscription. Although there are people who do that. The bottom line is, I'm encouraging you, whether it's this program or other, other outlets of information that uh, you know, are, are providing that independent point of view, please consider becoming a supporter. Because there's a lot of deception out there. By the way, one of the new sources that, uh, that I have uh, encountered recently, and I, you know, I'm always keeping my eyes open, Revolver.News. 
saw a very interesting article there from a couple of days ago, and I became aware of this little tete-a-tete going on between Tucker Carlson and uh, the U.S. military um, last week. And what was interesting is the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, has been sicking its PSYOP warriors on uh, Tucker Carlson via social media. And I didn't see Tucker's original report, but apparently he was he was calling into question the the wokeness of uh, the U.S. military. Well, you know, we've got to come up with with uniforms that will fit pregnant women in combat. That's how woke our, our military is becoming. This story, and I, there is no one who, who takes credit for it here in the byline, but it's from Revolver.News, says Tucker Carlson may have never served in the armed forces, but he's still decisively winning a PR war against the U.S. military. Apparently that shouldn't surprise anyone because the U.S. military is uh, not exactly winning most of the wars it fights these days. The article says, During America's long golden age as a country, the military typically abstained from politics and won wars. But in the decaying globalist American empire, the military plays a very different role. Protecting America and winning conflicts isn't the military's goal at all. Instead, the armed forces have become a skin suit. This once great institution has been repurposed into a vehicle for globalist and left-wing domestic political goals. So apparently a week ago, the clash between Carlson and the Department of Defense began. In remarks delivered for the communist holiday of International Women's Day, Biden boasted of how he and President Obama had worked to make the gender, the military rather, a fully gender-neutral body. This is a quote from Biden. I'm incredibly proud that in 2015, under the Obama-Biden administration, we took the final steps to open up all positions in the military to anyone qualified to serve in them. The women who join today's military aren't told no when they want to fly fighter jets or attack helicopters just because of their gender. They aren't told no when they want to apply to ranger school or infantry officer basic training. Now, Biden bragged that it's easier forever than preg- easier than ever for pregnant women and women who care about their appearance to serve in the armed forces. Quote, we're making good progress, designing body armor that fits women properly, tailoring combat uniforms for women, creating maternity flight suits, updating, updating requirements for their hairstyles. End quote. And Biden said overtly that his administration would be fighting to change the military to make it more feminine. A place where a woman trying to become a general is as easy to understand as a woman becoming a teacher or a nurse. Again, quoting Biden. And some of it is going to take, and you know, an intensity of purpose and mission to really change the culture and habits that cause women to leave the military. That women are making sure more diverse candidates are considering being considered for career advancing opportunities at every single level. That women aren't penalized in their careers for having children. That women aren't just token members, but integral parts throughout all branches and divisions. End quote. Now, in response, on Tuesday night, Tucker Carlson said what any American would have said 50 years ago, and what every reasonable person still believes now, that making the military more feminine makes it weaker, not stronger. And that carving out new rules so that pregnant women can serve while keeping their hairstyles and painted nails to boot is grotesque. Now look, you can disagree. But nothing Carlson said is insane or even particularly notable. What's notable is the shrill, borderline, ridiculous response from the once apolitical defense establishment. And and they have a screen cap here of, uh, you know, a bunch of masked women in uniform. Yes, the COVID mask. 
press secretary smites Fox host that dissed diversity in U.S. military. That's not a screen cap from the DNC or Slate or even the Center for American Progress. That's a screen cap from defense.gov. In other words, an official website of the American military. And it should be disturbing to anyone who cares about the military's overall efficacy. How can anyone feel confidence in a military that writes headlines about it smiting talking TV or TV talking heads who dissed it? I mean, that's pretty woke language, you have to admit. And the, the body text, by the way, is no less appalling. Quote, the United States military is the greatest the world has ever seen because of its diversity. Pentagon Press Secretary John F. Kirby said during a news briefing this morning, Kirby addressed this because a Fox Cable show host used his show to denigrate the contributions of women in the military and to say the Chinese military is catching up to the U.S. military because it does not allow women to serve in the percentage that the United States does. Wow. And as this article points out, ooh, sick burn. They don't even say the loser's name because he's so lame like that. Then the Department of Defense used Twitter to issue another passive-aggressive attack on Carlson, but in fitting fashion, this attack hurt the one making it more than the target. This tweet says women were limited to supporting roles in the military early on. Since then, women have made great strides to shatter glass ceilings within the military. Women were limited to supporting roles in the military early on. Any historically observant person might realize that early on, the U.S. military actually won the wars it fought in. Does anybody who isn't a full-time Twitter addict find this appealing or impressive? And yet, despite all the embarrassing attacks levied on him, Carlson's actually been generous in his response. On Thursday night, even as he doubled down on his criticism of maternity madness... Carlson described the military as the last functional institution of any size in this country. Now, the article here says Tucker's being far too charitable. The military has become just as dysfunctional as every other institution in America. Soon, it could get even worse. For starters, the woke turn of the armed forces isn't an innovation of the newly arrived Biden administration. It's been progressing for years. It continued throughout the Trump administration. True, Trump had some limited victories, such as a temporary return to the ban on service by transgender individuals. But the Trump military was entirely invested in making it as easy as possible for the military to keep pregnant women in active service. This press release, for instance, was issued under Trump, not Biden. Quote, the fit and wear tests are part of an effort to roll out a flight uniform designed specifically for pregnant aviators. This effort is important, said First Lieutenant Avery Thompson, lead program manager for maternity development efforts in the AFUO. Current air crew members are modifying their flight duty uniforms at a significant, significant personal financial cost, or they're borrowing bigger uniforms from their husbands, which creates a, a safety of flight issue. The maternity flight duty uniform will help remove a barrier for approximately 400 pregnant airmen each year. End quote. All right, there's more to this. I'm going to encourage you, check it out in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Look, I don't see this as any kind of an attack on, eh, women are less than men. I think there's, there's a biological reality, though, that probably should be addressed at some point here. And the biological reality is most any first world military, when they send in their troops to go kill and destroy... The people they're going to put on the ground are going to be the strongest, most aggressive, most capable soldiers they can put out there. You might find a few women who can, can fit into that cadre, but I submit they would be the exception. 
Leave the dirty work. Fighting the fires, changing the oil, fighting the wars. Leave it to the men. I know how sexist that sounds, by the way. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a, one quick afterthought here uh, from this article from Revolver.News about how the Pentagon's fight with Tucker Carlson proves it doesn't exist to win wars anymore. Um, look, I have great respect for people who choose to, to serve in the armed forces. But I'm also not blind to the fact that because the armed forces are a, a an official extension of the government, they are part of, you know, the machinery, there has been a very concerted effort for decades to try to uh, to use the military as a bit of a social laboratory. And it's wokeness was going to excuse me, was going to catch up eventually. It's getting there. Do you realize the army or I'm sorry, the military spent uh, most of 2020 vowing that they would overhaul the force, meaning our armed forces, to uh, maximize diversity and inclusion as opposed to say fighting prowess. And back in December, Defense Secretary Mark Esper announced a review of all aptitude tests administered by the military just to ensure these tests didn't hinder the higher goal of diversity. But even before George Floyd's death, the military was touting diversity as its greatest strength. In a 2019 tweet, the DOD bragged about how military service prepared one woman for a career as a beauty influencer and diversity activist. Wow. All these tweets, initiatives, obnoxious cable TV clapbacks are more than a distraction. They reveal the fundamental nature of the modern military. Whatever the U.S. military cares about, it's certainly not winning wars. In fact, in many ways, the U.S. Armed Forces are barely a military at all. Instead, it's an enormously expensive vehicle for pushing progressive politics and enriching defense contractors and war profiteers. A military that wants to win wars would focus on ruthlessly preparing to do that. It wouldn't pick fights with cable news hosts as an excuse to talk about how badass and lethal women in combat are. And by the way, they have the the tweets to prove it. A military that cares about winning would maintain rigorous physical standards for soldiers instead of weakening them to help women pass. It would promote entirely based on rigorous measures of merit instead of throwing those standards out and explicitly warning officers that their promotions are contingent on hitting diversity targets. It wouldn't worry at all about the fairness of making sure pregnant women can return to service without enduring a career setback. It would have exactly zero jobs for gender advisor. Bottom line is, militaries are meant to win wars and defeat foreign adversaries. But the four branches of the American Armed Forces are serving a very different purpose. They don't win our current wars, and they do not effectively prepare to win future ones. America doesn't spend $700 billion per year to deter Chinese aggression or to defeat the Taliban. America spends $700 billion a year to tell women that they're just as good at being soldiers and sailors as men are. It spends $700 billion a year to affirm against all external evidence that diversity is our strength. $700 billion a year to prop up the balance sheets of of defense contractors and provide de facto welfare to the lower middle class. 
It spends $700 billion a year in order to give transgender soldiers free sex changes. Slashing the DOD budget in half might be the most appropriate approach to welfare reform. After all, the American Armed Forces are now just a woke welfare department with drones. Wow, that was, that was kind of harsh, but in principle, I, I can't disagree. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. One other thing I wanted to share with you, um, this is going back to, to the COVID response. Great article that I found on Reason.com. Uh, this is from Veronique de Rugi. And uh, Veronica, I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm mispronouncing your name. I love her writing. And this article is called Stop Trying to Create a Zero-Risk Society. She says a lot has been said about the harm to people resulting from government lockdowns imposed in the name of fighting COVID-19. However, lockdowns aren't the only misguided policies that we've had and continue to endure because of this pandemic. In fact, she says we will suffer many tragic effects from the pandemic-induced changes long after the lockdowns are lifted and the coronavirus is endemic. The case against lockdowns, she says, is pretty well established. In fact, contrary to accusations issued by lockdown advocates, one doesn't have to believe that COVID-19 isn't a serious disease to oppose lockdowns. Nor does one have to make the claim that doing nothing would have worked wonders in controlling this nasty virus. All you have to show is that lockdowns do not control the spread of the virus any better than less draconian alternatives. In fact, when all costs are considered such as the short- and long-term health, educational and psychological harms the lockdowns caused, their costs far exceed their benefits. Now, Veronique de Rugi says it's also hard to avoid the label of tyrannical policy today when talking about lockdowns a year into this pandemic. Many academic studies uh, about their lack of effectiveness and enormous evidence of their harms are available. Yet lockdowns still aren't fully lifted and many schools still aren't opened. And it's particularly frustrating since it's become obvious that those who protesting the lifting of these policies, apart from the politicians who directly or indirectly benefit from them, are the wealthier and politically connected people who are less affected by lockdowns than most. She says, however, there are other terrible consequences of the pandemic response that we'll have to live with long after the lockdowns are lifted. The main one is the utterly insane expansion of federal spending. It's traditional for the federal government to expand during emergencies, yet the size of the response this time around is both unprecedented and unwarranted. Uncle Sam's $6 trillion so far in COVID-19 relief spending can't be justified based on the GDP loss, on wage and salary losses, or on any other measures. A second round of individual checks, independent of how COVID-19 has affected their income or unemployment benefits that pay workers more for being unemployed than from working, could worsen people's expectations of what Uncle Sam should do for us or what benefits we're entitled to. Furthermore, she says this spending is turning into more debt. Federal indebtedness now stands at 136% of GDP, and that's before President Joe Biden's COVID-19 relief package. It's hard to overstate how insane it is that these levels are rising without an end in sight. Debt reached unprecedented heights during World War II, but it was always projected to fall when the war ended. It's now fashionable to claim that, well, debt doesn't matter. After all, we've been warning about the unsustainability of our debt for years. True. She says it's also true that a full-on debt crisis may not happen for years, but that doesn't mean it won't ever happen. Just looking at the numbers reveals the inevitability of such a crisis. Who will finance our debt when it reaches 300% of GDP? 
Who will finance the debt Uncle Sam will need to pay for the $101 trillion in unfunded liabilities accumulated by Social Security and Medicare? Her point is that debt crises take a long time to develop until they're suddenly upon us. But before that happens, we will still have to live with the other nasty side effects of our overbearing debt, such as new taxes, big cuts to government programs, and slower economic growth. All of these effects will, once again, affect poorer people the most. Now, Veronique de Rugi says, finally, perhaps the greatest cost of the policy reactions to COVID-19 is that it will have left Americans believing that governments can and must do anything to achieve a zero-risk society. That mindset means spending trillions of dollars on any bills that pretend to protect us from adversity. But it also entails a worrisome tolerance for intrusive policies, such as vaccine passports, daily symptom surveys in schools, a permanent mask mandate in planes, and many other forces, forms rather of hygiene socialism, regardless of the merits of these policies. Yet, as economist Steve Horowitz recently wrote to her on Facebook, quote, the reality is that we can never achieve a zero-risk society, and the costs of trying to are enormous, both in terms of material responses and human freedom. I will have a link to uh, this article in, uh, in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And if you find that there's good reading here, if you find that, hey, these are, these are thought-provoking articles, there's no, there's no you know, expectation you're going to agree with all of them. But I think that these are offering a, a very good and, I believe, credible counterpoint to much of the, the mainstream narrative that we're expected to believe, you know, that we're told, now this is what you're supposed to think. I don't like being told what to think. And I, I presume you're probably the same way. So I just want to make very clear. Anything that I'm sharing with you is not an attempt to tell you what to think. I may say it with conviction in my voice and like, by gosh, you know, this is the truth. But I encourage you to ultimately make that decision. Is it true or isn't it? And I trust you to make that decision, even if you don't agree with me, even if you say, sorry, Brian, I can't go there. I don't think that uh, that that's going to hold water. That's okay. I at least give you credit for considering it. You know, may not have changed your mind, but hopefully it offered a little bit broader perspective than whatever it was you had before. That's why I do what I do. And I do it with a smile. Okay, once again, thanks for joining us. For a little exercise in wrong think, go to thebrianhydeshow.com, subscribe to the podcast, read the show notes, share them with friends, and consider becoming a donor or patron if this thing tickles your fancy. This is The Brian Hyde Show.